morning, everyone. Good to see you today. As Lance indicated in this season of giving, we're focusing on the topic of forgiving. Now, in a perfect world, those who do us wrong would see what they've done. They would feel remorse for the pain and the damage that they've caused. Then they would do whatever they could to repair that damage and then ask for our forgiveness. We would then, out of the generosity of our hearts, we would forgive them and we would begin the process of rebuilding uh, trust in them. But this, of course, is a far from perfect world. And so this path of forgiveness that I've just described to you is, is pretty rare. It doesn't happen that often. In reality, most of the wrong that's done to us is done by those who who don't think they've done anything wrong at all. In fact, most of the people that we end up having to forgive feel that they have a justifiable excuse for what they've done, and they honestly, they would be indignant at the thought that we are forgiving them. Forgive me for what would be their thought. They feel no remorse, and they will most likely never offer a confession. Now, they should, but they don't. And so if we're ever going to be freed from the pain and and the bitterness of the wrong that's been done to us, we have to forgive them. Well, we don't have to, but if we're going to be freed, we do. And that requires what we're calling total forgiveness. Total forgiveness requires action from only one side. It's different than reconciled forgiveness, the path that I just described to you. Reconciled forgiveness requires both sides to agree. That's what it means to reconcile. We use that word often not just for relationships, but for financial transactions. You know, your checking account is reconciled when both sides, you and the bank, agree on how much money you have in the account. You agree on what is true. You compare your records with the bank's records, and you make adjustments. You adjust the entries so that they agree. Now, without that agreement, without that reconciliation, there can't be an ongoing banking relationship. In other words, if you insist that you have more money in the bank than you really do, and you spend it in in that understanding, then eventually they will close your account. And it's the same kind of thing that happens in relationships. If wrong is done, but it's it's never admitted to, there's never an agreement that it really was wrong, then trust is damaged, and eventually the relationship breaks. And we cannot repair a broken relationship on our own. That takes two sides. But we can forgive on our own. Total forgiveness is not dependent on anything from them. So in this series, we are looking at this one-sided forgiveness, this, this total forgiveness. And today we're going to talk about the three dimensions of total forgiveness In other words, what what does this look like in three-dimensional reality? Total forgiveness takes very specific action in three dimensions, in private, in public, and before God. Let's begin with dimension number one, privately. Privately, I keep no record of wrongs. I keep no record of wrongs. 1 Corinthians 13 has a great list of, of what love really looks like. And one of the phrases deals specifically with what love looks like when it's wrong, when forgiveness is required. And this is what it says, love keeps no record of wrongs. 
Now, when we are wronged, our natural response is to become kind of like a prosecuting attorney on the case against the person who's wronged us. We, we talked about this just a little bit last week. And we are right about the fact that wrong demands justice. What we are wrong about, what we miss, is we think we're the only one that cares about justice in this case. We're the ones that wronged, and so nobody cares about justice more than we do. We're, we're the victims in this. We, we have a, a dog in this fight. But it turns out God cares and will one day bring justice and will right every wrong. The, the disagreement we tend to have or what we tend to miss is that right now, that is not God's top goal. God's top goal is to restore our relationship with him, everyone's relationship with him. And so often justice has to wait in order to make room for that goal, in order for forgiveness to have a chance. Forgiveness is the decision on our part then to turn the case over to God. We're off the case. We've turned the matter over to him. That's what it means to forgive, to, to let go of the wrong, to let go of the case. Now, practically, that takes place at the record-keeping level. You know, when one attorney is replaced by another attorney on a case, the first thing that happens is all of the case files, all the records are turned over to the new attorney. You know, the previous attorney no longer has any use for the case files because, well, they're off the case. Now, justice in this matter is no longer their job, and so the files have no business being in their possession. And it's the same with forgiveness. If you are still in possession of the records of the wrongs that have been done, then you are still on the case. You have not forgiven yet. Now, the records of the wrong that's done against you, of course, are, are not kept on paper form usually. They're, they're not visible. They're not even digital files. So how do we turn these, these case files over? They, they exist in our memories and in our, oftentimes, our emotions. Well, let me give you two suggestions about how you turn these files over, how you keep no record of wrongs. First is you've got to begin by being honest about what they did. To no longer keep a record implies that there was one in the first place to keep. You know, when it gets to January, I'm going to stop keeping my 2010 financial records. It's been seven years. You know, they're real records. I've been keeping them for seven years, but after seven years, I, I don't need them anymore. I'm not going to be audited after seven years, so I can get rid of those files. What I'm saying is you can't stop keeping a record that never existed in reality. So in order to stop keeping the records of the wrong that's been done to you, one of the first critical steps is to be honest about that wrong, to make sure the records are, are real and honest. In other words, you do have a case. You're not getting ready to something that's fraudulent. No, 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 you're, you're turning over files that are a reflection of reality. It was wrong what was done. It did hurt, and it did do damage. But oftentimes, we we try to minimize the pain we feel by kind of falsifying the records in some ways. And there's really three common ways we do this. There's more, but these are the three most common ways we kind of falsify the records of the wrong that's been done to us. First, we, we often just minimize it. We minimize the wrong. You know, we act like we're tough and didn't really bother us. We, we didn't notice that there was nothing, you know, I'm, I'm tough, I, I'm, I, I can handle this. And then even... 
if someone does ask for our forgiveness, what's, what's the common response? When you ever ask someone for forgiveness, what's the common response? Oh, don't worry about it. No big deal. No worries. Why, why is that the response? Well, it could be that maybe it wasn't a big deal. But oftentimes, the reason people respond that way is they, they just get uncomfortable talking at this level, and, and they, they don't like the image that, yeah, it really did bother me. It really did hurt. And if they admit, well, hey, I forgive you, what I'm saying is that, that was wrong. That, that did hurt. And we kind of try to think that we're tougher, and we, we just don't need to handle that. We don't want to look weak. But if we diminish the wrong that's done to us, then it makes it really impossible to forgive or to be forgiven because the records are falsified. They're, they're not honest records. So we minimize the wrong. That's one of the common ways we, we, we do this. We falsify the records of what was done to us. Sometimes we will excuse their wrong. Oh, I, I'm sure they didn't mean it. They, they were having a bad day. If you look at their childhood, you can completely understand why they are the way they are. On and on it goes. Now, maybe those things are true. But that doesn't excuse or make what they did less painful or less wrong. But it, it kind of takes the sting out of it a little bit. If, if we can excuse their wrong, it, it doesn't hurt quite as bad. It, it really wasn't something that they intended to do to me. It was because of these other factors. It hurts more to say, no, they, they really did me wrong. So we, we try to take the sting and the, you know, put a little salve on our wound by, by excusing what they did. And that falsifies the records. One of the most damaging things we do to ourselves in this area is we blame ourselves. Well, it was, it was really my fault. You know, th- there's a lot of blame that we assign to ourselves. But basically we say, you know, if I had been a better person, if I hadn't said this, hadn't done that, then they wouldn't have done what they did. But you see, even if we did have a part in what they did, it doesn't make what they did right. It's still wrong what they did. And so the problem is whenever we falsify the records of the wrong that's done to us, in order to help us feel just a little bit better about the pain, about how wrong it was, what we do is it corrupts the files, and that makes them impossible to turn over to God, because God will not take over falsified records. He, he doesn't take lies. So first, we often need to just clean up the records before we turn them over. Stop denying what they did. Remove the excuses for what they did. Stop blaming ourselves for whatever choices they made, and just call it for what it is. Sure, there may have been other factors at play. Sure, I'm sure I could have handled it better. Sure, you know, maybe I'm a little more sensitive than I should be, but this was wrong. This hurt. This did damage. And this is the file that I'm now letting go of. I'm, I'm turning it over. I'm turning it over to God. So first, be honest about what they did if you're gonna keep no record of wrongs. Secondly, my second suggestion is stop rehearsing the case. Now, we do this a lot. You know, rehearsal is done to prepare for the real event. You know, the event, of course, that we're rehearsing in our mind is 
their trial. Now, we don't imagine that it's, you know, maybe going to be an actual trial in court, but we long for the moment when the evidence comes to light and and they see and they're convicted and, and they're sentenced in some way to some kind of pay, payment for what they've done. And the thought of that moment in our mind, the, the moment when we finally get through and, and justice is done and they see what they've done, well, that moment's a glorious thought to us. But it hasn't come yet, and it doesn't look like it's going to happen anytime soon with many of these situations, many of these cases. So we settle for something else. We have the ability to conduct a pretty detailed and vivid rehearsal in our minds of what we would say and how we might counter what they would say. And we spend a a tremendous amount of time doing this in our mind. I mean, we can lay awake at night rehearsing this stuff. Oh, that'd be a a great way to say it. uh, If if I get a chance to say that, that's going to get right through. that'll, That'll... That'll make the point. We rehearse it as we drive. You know, I've, I've been sitting in meetings on the outside and rehearsing on the inside. It's amazing. I think we really would be shocked if we knew the total amount of time that we spend rehearsing the wrong that's been done to us. I mean, just thinking about it and pondering it and figuring out what can we say and how can we get them back and We just rehearse these things. So what are we supposed to do? Just forgive and forget? I mean, that's the common statement. Well, the idea of equating forgiving with forgetting comes from a verse in Scripture. It's Hebrews 8, verse 12. It says, for God is speaking here, says, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. But the question, when you think about that practically, is is how can we forget? I mean, we're not just the prosecuting attorney on this case. We are also the victim in this matter. We can't just, especially if it was a a deep wrong, we we can't just forget what they did to us. I mean, it's, it's impossible. The way we're wired on the inside, it's impossible for us to forget meaningful events in our life, both positive and negative. In fact, severe trauma has been known to cause amnesia. But that's not good. That's not a good thing. That's not, that forgetting is not a good thing. Healing often begins with a detailed recollection of what actually happened. So how can we forgive and forget? Well, how does God forgive and forget? I mean, God knows all. He doesn't have the ability, really, to no longer recall something. And so, whether it's with God or with us, what, what this means is to remember our sins, their sins no more, means we no longer bring it up. We no longer move it from the archives to the front. We stop bringing it forward. We stop, I mean, right now, there's all kinds of thoughts going on in your mind, but there's some that are at the front, and there's some that are way back. And when they pop to the front, we just keep pushing them back. We can't forget. But we can stop mentally accessing and using the files. We can stop rehearsing what we would say to those who have wronged us if we ever get our day in court. Now, to be honest, this is, this is a challenge. This is very hard to do. In fact, if you tried to do this, you've encountered a principle 
First stated by Aristotle, he, he said this, you've probably heard this in your science classes, nature abhors a vacuum. Now, Aristotle, of course, was referring to the field of physics, but it also applies to the human heart. We can't just get rid of stuff that's in our heart. We can't just empty our heart of all of the records of wrong that have been stored and rehearsed for years because there's a lot of emotions that are attached to those things. They, they just don't go away. And so because our heart is kind of like a vacuum, we can't just empty it. It has to be replaced. It has to be displaced. We have to replace these memories with actions, actions of forgiveness. In other words, we can't just forgive one-dimensionally. That's why I'm not just talking about getting rid of the thoughts in your mind. That's, that's where it begins. But if that's where it stops, you will not succeed. Like reality, total forgiveness has three dimensions to it. It begins with the decision. You know, I, I'm going to turn this case over to God. And with the decision that I'm going to be honest about what it is so that I can really turn it over and... As it comes to mind, I'm going to work at not allowing myself to spend the next 15 minutes rehearsing this case. But if it's going to really get traction, it needs to move on to dimension number two and then dimension number three. So let's move on. Dimension number two, publicly. Publicly, I give good gifts. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus gave some very practical examples of some surprising gifts we could give those who have wronged us. We actually went through this list uh, back in the fall. We talked about it in the message entitled Asymmetrical Warfare. But I want to focus this morning on the introductory statement that Jesus makes before he gives kind of a list of interesting examples of how we might surprisingly do good to those who have done us wrong. Here's what he says in his introduction in Luke 6, 27 through 28. But I tell you who hear me, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, Pray for those who mistreat you. So verse 27, the first part, addresses the public dimension. We're going to do that first, and then we'll move on to verse 28, which is the spiritual dimension, the before God dimension. So first, publicly. Publicly, we choose to love our enemies. Now, in case we are thinking of love as kind of a one-dimensional internal emotion or thought, Jesus right away clarifies what he means by loving our enemies, and he says, do good to those who hate you. Get, get outside of your head and do something that's really going to help them. So to totally forgive, we, we must move from intention or thought to action. It must go public. Now, when we read this verse, the word enemy and the word hate are, are extreme words to us. But again, remember that forgiveness is honest about what's been done. And these words are honest words. The word hate in the Greek language here means to oppose. And the word for enemy, the Greek word that's used for enemy here, means to act with hostility toward. So hate is the internal stance. But someone becomes your enemy when they act. That leads to enemy behavior. And these words accurately describe what occurs when someone wrongs us. First, they oppose us for some reason. They may not use the word hate, but that's what the word means. They, they, they oppose us. They, they line up against us for some reason. I mean, maybe we didn't do what they want us to do, or maybe we're simply in the way of what they want, but 
in their hearts, they line up against us. They decide to oppose us. And then they act. They, they move from internal to external. And how does that affect us? What do we do? Well, we respond by hating them. And then what do we do? We become enemies of them. We, we act on that. And we respond by repeating this cycle, and they respond by repeating this cycle. And it's not just a circle that kind of goes round and around and around. It, this is more like a spiral that goes down. It gets deeper and deeper and deeper over the years. And much of what you may encounter this Christmas season are some of these long-standing hate holes that have just been driven into the ground over decades of people opposing and acting and opposing and acting and opposing and acting, and it just goes deeper and deeper and deeper. Forgiveness breaks this spiral. It's the only thing that really breaks this spiral, by loving our enemies. The decision to forgive breaks this spiral. And it does so by deciding not to hate but to love. Love and hate are polar opposites. Hate is a decision to oppose someone. Love is a decision to help someone. Not just feel warm about them, but to actually get on their team to do something to help them. So hate does harm. It does enemy deeds. But love does what? Good. It's an internal position, an internal decision that goes public by doing good, good deeds. Now, when someone has wronged you, when someone has opposed you and identified themselves as an enemy by what they've done, you will not feel the emotion of love towards them. You will have to decide in your heart to move from one side to the other. You'll have to decide to love and not hate. And then you will need to act. And then, is it all done? No, you'll need to decide to love again. And then, because of that decision, there'll be something else you can do. Good. And it won't end there. You'll have to decide again. And you'll need to keep repeating this over and over and over again. Why? Well, most likely, the hole that's been dug on this side is pretty deep. And it's going to take more than just the decision to forgive and do one good thing to begin to pull things out of the dive, to break that cycle. And you may, may be in a, a, such a deep hole of hate that it's, it may take years before they change, and they may never change. In fact, the cycle of, of hate and enemy activity may be so deep that it's just hard for you to even imagine what you could do that would be good to them. So let me help by suggesting two types of good gifts that you can give to your enemies. Two gifts that show up in public. The first is a reputation they didn't earn. A reputation they didn't earn. Now, why do I say this? Well, often we can't get our day in court with them, as I've said, so we go for the next best thing. We attack them in the court of public opinion. 
We assemble our own jury, and we try our case before anyone who will listen to us. We tell everyone and anyone that we can what they have done, and we feel better with every single vote that we get against them. Every time someone says, yeah, that, that was awful, we feel just a... Now, it's not total justice, but it, it, it feels like, well, we're, we're approaching justice because this person agrees and that person agrees. So we go public with this. But love does the opposite. Love makes the choice to not spread the news of what they did to us. Now, let me be clear. If it's a crime that they've committed against us, if it's an abuse of some kind, sexual abuse, we don't cover that up. We go to the proper authorities with that. And we might need help in dealing with the damage that they've done. And so it's appropriate to talk to maybe a counselor to help process this or a good trusted friend to help kind of process what's going on. That's okay. But what's not in line with love is the decision to go on the, the trail of public campaigning against them telling anyone and everyone who will listen what they have done to us. The reason is we're off the case. It is not our matter. Now, this is very hard to do because especially if you've been hurt wrongly or deeply, rather, you, you, you want to tell people. And as a reflection of how much you're rehearsing the case, you, you want to practice in front of other people. Years ago, I was falsely accused on a matter. I mean, just fabrications, lies told about me. And I was, I was so upset. And I wanted to go on the public trail of just setting the record straight and telling everyone what was really going on. And I remember one day I was walking around the neighborhood, and I, I was fuming. I mean, I was rehearsing with emotion the case. And then God brought a thought to my mind. And the thought was this. The first part was, they did get it wrong about you. And my response was, you bet, they sure did. And then the next thought was this. Aren't you glad they didn't get it right? And I was, I was somewhat confused by that. And then this thought came. This is just thoughts. I'm pretty sure these are from God. Thought was this, they don't know everything about you that I know. They don't have all the dirt on you. Now, let me be clear, I'm not announcing that I'm living some kind of double life. <laughs> There's all kinds of horrible things that I'm trying to keep, you know, from any, anyone from seeing. That, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is this, if every single thought that I've ever thought, every word that I've ever said, every deed that I've ever done was seen, if all the case files on me were opened up, I wouldn't be that impressive. And my, my hunch is, neither would you. And so because of God's love, because this isn't the season of justice, none of us have the reputation we deserve. None of us do. And so out of love for them, we decide to stop talking badly about them, about our enemies, to everyone who will listen. We just stop it. Now, if you're like me, you'll be in a situation you'll think, oh, this would be a great, this would be a great audience. They need to know. And you'll just need to stop. 
Now, interestingly, this month in the news, it's been all about men whose reputations were wrongly protected. So to be clear, I'm not talking about that. And I don't know all of the motives of why these men's reputations for sexual abuse were protected for some of them decades. I can't look inside the heart of those who protected these men and know why they did it. But my guess is it probably wasn't out of genuine love for them. It appears that in some cases it was fear of them. In some cases it was financial gain. But it wasn't love. What I'm talking about is a decision to turn the case over to God and to stop prosecuting it in public. We give them the gift of a reputation that they don't deserve because we have a reputation we don't deserve. And then secondly, we give them practical help that they don't deserve. That's what Jesus says here, to do good to those who hate you. Now, that's just not normal. Jesus admits this later on in this passage in Luke 6, 32-33. This is what he says. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. I mean, everybody does this. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. You see, there is this giant barrier. We'll just put up this line between the two sides. A giant barrier between hate and love. You know, that it's really easy to stay on, the, on, the, on one side or the other. Everybody does this. You know, love, do good, love, do good, love, do good. That, that cycle just runs itself. You know, if you do good to me, I think I like you. If you do more good to me, I may actually love you. If you keep doing good to me, you may become my favorite person. That's just the way we all do it. Same thing on the other side. Hate, do bad, hate, do bad, hate enemy, hate enemy, hate him. Boy, that world history is that. So how we treat people, Jesus is saying, is dependent on how they treat us. That's just normal. But God doesn't give out extra credit for dependent love. Everybody does that. What's worthy, Jesus says, of extra credit is this independent love. This love that does good to someone who's done harm to us. That, that's, that's rare. Forgiving actions independent of what they've done. Now, that's hard. Not only is it rare, it's hard you know, if it was easy, everyone would be doing it. So forgiveness climbs over the hate enemy wall to the other side. And sometimes that wall's pretty high. And it does good to those who have done bad to us. You know, years ago, I was struggling to forgive someone who had done damage to me. And I'd, I'd tried everything up to this point. I mean, I'd, I'd tried to stop rehearsing it. But, man, the thoughts just kept coming into my mind and all of the emotions with them. And I was not uh, publicly talking bad about them. Uh, but I just, I mean, years when I just could not put this one behind me. The wall was just, it looked like it had no top to it. And then I heard about a financial need that they had. And honestly, the last thing I wanted to do was help them. 
They did not deserve my help. And as I wrestled with that, God on the inside just said, you, you have got to help them. And so I did. And it wasn't much, just a few hundred dollars. And I, I gave it anonymously. They had no idea that I gave it. But I could not get over the wall in my heart until I gave something to them practical that they did not deserve. As I said, they didn't know I gave it, but I knew, and God knew. And the wall, in, I'd like to say the wall in my heart just crumbled. But what did happen is it was lowered. And I was able to get over that wall more often. So we start privately. We keep no record of wrongs. Then publicly we give good gifts. This is hard, but this is what total forgiveness does. And then before God, spiritually, I pray for their blessing. Oh, this is hard. The last verse of the introduction that Jesus gives in Luke 6, verse 28, says, Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. You know, it's one thing to stop rehearsing the wrong in your heart, to not attack the reputation in public, to occasionally give them some help with something that they need. But I, I'm just telling you, it's something else completely to actively ask God to bless their lives. Because if you're a follower of Christ, your understanding should be that when God blesses, good things happen to people. And your first thought is going to be that would send them the entirely wrong message. I mean, they, they need to see the wrong they've done. If God blesses them and things get better for them in whatever category God decides to bless, then they're going to come to the wrong conclusion that they're, they're good when they're not, they're bad. I mean, just try this and see how hard it is. You know, when I first decided, you know, I actually have got to do this verse. You know, my prayers were pretty weird because I kept loading up blessing prayers with cursing statements. <laughs> I would start intending to bless them, and before I realized, I've just spent the last minute cursing them. My prayers would be something like, Father, I pray that you would bring them to their knees so that they can repent which will then allow you to bless them. You know, prayers like that. I mean, a little more convoluted, but that was kind of the idea. Open their eyes so that you might bless them. I mean, it's just amazing how the human heart is. It's so hard to just say, God, would you just bless them? Would you bring joy into their life? Would you allow their family to flourish? Would you protect them? Oh, that's hard. And this is not just something you pray once. This has got to be a regular prayer. And I, I promise you, it will start as a pure discipline. You will not want to do this. But as you pray, God works miracles in your heart. If you do this over time, it will switch you from wanting to hear bad news about them 
to actually wanting to hear good news. Now, that'll take some time. Now, at one point in my life, I had to make a list of all my enemies to pray for. And I decided that Saturday was going to be enemy day. Saturday was the day when I prayed through my list. And honestly, most Saturday mornings I'd wake up and it would be, oh no, this is enemy day. I hate enemy day. And I would go for a walk and I had my little list and I'd start praying for God to bless this person. And and then it's interesting when you start praying, at first you just, God bless, you fill in the name, and then God bless, you fill in another name. But as you go through time, you, you actually start adding some more to how maybe God might bless them. But often, not every Saturday, but often, Saturdays ended up being the best day of the week for me. Because by the time, I mean, it would take me five, maybe ten minutes sometimes to get through my list. But by the time I got to the end of my list, (laughs) I was walking on air. I mean, I I was freed. It became the best day of the week. And I did it on Saturday because I didn't want to stand before you on Sunday. <laughs> if I did it on Monday, by the time I got to Sunday, I might be all bottled up again. But I had to do that for about two years. And every once in a while, I still got to pull a list out and go through it. So let me close again in the words of Jesus in Luke 6. But I tell you who hear me. A lot of people are going to be, I don't hear this. (laughs) Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you, who oppose you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Let's pray. Father, this is um, this is hard stuff, and we thank you that um, while we were sinners, Jesus, you died for us. While we were enemies to you, you didn't just give us a few hundred bucks. You didn't just pray for us, Jesus. You took on a body and you were tortured, and you died an agonizing death for us. So we ask that you would help us to do what seems like the impossible. You would give us strength to climb over the wall between the the spiral of hate and enemy and to the side of love and good. We need your help in this. I pray you'd give us specific ideas of who and what we need to do next. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.